Hi, Doug Hooley here on the Called Out Cafe podcast with episode number 13 of the current series titled Choose Your Jesus Wisely. It's based on the second book I wrote titled False Christian Gods, Choose Your Jesus Wisely. That book's available on Amazon if you're interested. The episode today is part one of what I've titled The Great Saw, The God of Service and Works. Well, there are many classic Christian false gods we could discuss. Any false god is a bad false god. However, in this and the next episode, we're going to do a case study on one particularly bad false god that I'm calling the God of Service and Works, or SAW for short. You know, S for service, A for and, W for works. I'm doing this to illustrate how some false gods have boldly infiltrated the church, both mainstream and evangelical. They've done this by practically marching in through the front door of the church on Sunday morning and taking over the service. I've chosen Saw because of how common belief in him is. Pulling together the information you've heard up to this point in this series, we're going to look at how to defend against Saw by applying the principles of biblical watchfulness. First, being knowledgeable of Scripture. Secondly, being awake and aware of the world around us considering Scripture. And third, applying the authentic truth to what we observe in the world around us as we abide in Jesus. In the next episode, I'll present the key components of a common sermon that you might hear about the importance in a Christian's life of doing good works. The second half of that episode will be an analysis of that sermon. But in this episode, I'm going to touch on some essentials that I want to review before we are even subjected to our fictional yet all-too-real sermon. The reason will become apparent in the next episode, but it's to demonstrate the importance of having knowledge of Scripture ahead of time. There is no denying it. There is a lot to know if you don't want to be duped in this world. The pursuit of authentic truth-based knowledge is a lifelong endeavor. Since our eternal status is dependent on it, it's best to get started as soon as we can. However, it is never too late to get started. One important thing we have to be aware of as we try to avoid buying into deception regarding who Jesus is, is why he came to this earth. Did he come to make our lives here better? Put more disposable income in our hands? Give us a formula for earthly success and complete health? Did Jesus come to start a worldwide social service agency? If we know, according to Scripture, the purpose of his first coming to this earth, it will help define the purpose of those who follow him and what they should be doing to fulfill their purpose. But before even that, we need to understand a very fundamental, biblically-based truth, that Jesus is unique. Jesus is a -a one-of-a-kind being. He is all God, and although now in an imperishable, glorified body, he is all human. When he walked the earth, he was the divine expression of God, made flesh. You can read that in John 1, 14. 
He was the translation of who the infinite, eternal God of light, who dwells in the unseen spirit world above is, into something that the finite, temporal world of flesh and darkness below, you know, where we live, could understand. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know, the synoptic Gospels, they document this divine expression of God. The Gospel of John and the Epistles help to explain Jesus more. I can't do what Jesus did. On a good day, I couldn't even pull off a recognizable imitation of Jesus for a few minutes without messing it up. I'll do my best to avoid sinning. I desire not to sin, but I will never be a non-sinner like Jesus was. I will always have memories of my past sin. Jesus has no such memories of his past. I'll tell others about Jesus as he leads me to and provides an opportunity, but I cannot save anyone from their sins by dying as the only worthy sacrifice on a Roman cross. He may cause me to rise from my grave to new life one day, but I will never rise from the dead under my own power and authority. I might remodel my bathroom and, you know, probably do a poor job of it, but I will have never been responsible for creating the universe. I can decide what I'm having for breakfast, but I will never have been the one to write the script for the future of all reality. Jesus is unique. If you're only looking to him as a WWJD, you know, what would Jesus do role model on how to live your life, you are missing the big picture. As you listen to the following list of purposes that Jesus came to the earth for, keep an eye open for how many of the purposes you could qualify to accomplish. So why did Jesus come? The following reasons for why Jesus came to the earth are taken from his own words and the words of the apostles and prophets. First, Jesus came to reveal who God is to the world by showing us himself. Read about that in John 1.14. He came to speak and act as the only one qualified to do so on behalf of God the Father. References for that are John 6.38-40, John 8, 25 to 26. He came to testify as to what the authentic truth of God is. Find that in John 18, 37. And John 12, 44 to 50 tells us that he came to bring the light from above into a dark world below. So, that's number one. Jesus came to reveal who God is to the world by showing us himself. Well, the second reason he came is that Jesus came to show us the love of his Father, to save the lost and give eternal life to those who would authentically, like really, believe in him. We're going to read about that in 1 Timothy 1, 15-16, John 3, 16-17, and 6, 51, in the book of Mark 2, verse 17, and Luke chapter 9, verse 10. If you go and read those scriptures, they're going to tell you that Jesus came to proclaim that he is the substance of the gospel. He is the way, the truth, and the life. 
He came to declare himself as the way that the brokenhearted can be healed, the captives of Satan can be set free, and the spiritually oppressed can be liberated, and the spiritually blind can be given sight. Read more about that in John 14:6, Luke 4:18-19. Jesus came to pay the price for our sins by offering himself as the only sacrifice worthy to accomplish that. You can read more about that in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 45. So again, the second reason Jesus came was to show us the love of his Father, save the lost, and give eternal life to those who would authentically believe in him. Next, Jesus came to destroy the devil, his works, and to get rid of death. Here's some references for that. Hebrews 2, 14 to 16, 1 John 3, verses 8 to 9. Well, Jesus came to judge, to judge on behalf of his Father and speak the words that bring judgment. More references, John 8, 16, 9, 39, 12, 47 to 49. Although we won't see a great deal of evidence on earth of this until Jesus returns, he came to establish his kingdom. One day, Jesus' kingdom of heaven will become the kingdom of this earth. Remember, Jesus said when he was asked by Pilate, you know, are you a king? Jesus told him, my kingdom is not of this earth. Well, it's still not. It's where Jesus is in heaven. And, you know, one by one, the living stones that are quarried here on the earth, the priests of God, the elect, the called out ones, hopefully you and I, one by one, after we're quarried, we are, uh, we show up in heaven where the head of the called out ones is, Jesus. And that's where he's assembling those living stones in what he's building in heaven. And one day he'll bring that with him. When he does, it says that he will destroy hell and he'll destroy death and Satan will be bound up. So the third reason that Jesus came to summarize that is to destroy the devil and his works and death. The fourth reason that Jesus came was that Jesus said he didn't come to bring peace on the earth, but a sword. Rather than unity, which we all seem to strive for and put such an emphasis on, he says he came to bring division and create enemies, even within one's own household. This is all puzzling until you discover that he himself is the dividing line. You know, he doesn't like contention any more than the rest of us do. But he is the dividing line. He is the, the key decision we must make in this life. Why are we here? We're here to decide who we're going to follow. On the one side of this dividing line are those who will trust and follow Jesus. On the other side are those who won't. You know, the, the old... Uh, saying there are two kinds of people in this world. Well, there you go. That's my version of that. In, we can read about this in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 39. There's to be peace and unity among those who are on the side of the line who choose to follow Jesus. Easier said than done. Not in a lot of evidence of success in that in the New Testament, but it's what we're to strive for. I talk quite a little bit about unity in my new book, 
leaving the church to follow Jesus and how it is even possible that we can attain that. The, okay, the next reason that Jesus came, the final one that I'll list, is that he came not to be served, but to serve. You can read about that in Mark chapter 10, verses 43 to 45. The scripture supporting this reason Jesus came is especially important to understand as we continue in this episode, since what we're looking at is the very common Christian false god, the god of service and works. Okay, so let's consider for a minute, how do we stack up? (laughs) Before we go any further, did you take note of what was on this list of reasons that Jesus came that I just gave to you, that you believe you personally could accomplish? Let me read those again. Start with number one. Jesus came to reveal who God is to the world by showing us himself. Jesus came to show us the love of his Father, save the lost, and give eternal life to those who would authentically believe in him. Jesus came to destroy the devil, his works, and death. Jesus said he didn't come to bring peace on the earth, but a sword. Rather than unity, he says he came to bring division and create enemies within his own household. Remember, that's Jesus is the dividing line. Choose him or don't. And finally, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. So, you might conclude, as I did, that you can cause division. (laughs) But when you understand that you personally would need to be the cause of such division because people were making a choice whether to believe in you as the Messiah, (laughs) makes it far less likely you could pull this off. And don't forget that such division would need to take place throughout the entire world and across all time. (laughs) If people other than Jesus could have accomplished what he came to do, he wouldn't have needed to come for those purposes. The most it seems humans can do is to talk about what Jesus did and is yet to do. But what about service? Jesus said he came to serve and not be served. Can't I serve others like Jesus did? Before you quickly answer yes, consider this following question. Why is it impossible for us to even come close to accomplishing any of the other things Jesus came to do as the Son of God? But we think we can serve others in the way he was talking about. Did Jesus say he came to primarily serve as our role model? Did God think to himself, well, it's all about service, so if I just send my son down there and show them how I expect them to act, then maybe they'll follow his example and I'll start acting that way. You know, is that God's plan? In other words, rather than serving as the sacrifice that would fulfill the requirements of the law, did Jesus come as a living example of how God expects the law to be followed? That just doesn't make any sense. These these thoughts should set off alarm bells in the mind of the watchful, authentic child of God. He's going to teach us how to act so we can follow the law better. That is not why Jesus came. Let's think about a service-related concept for a minute. It's about being great in God's kingdom. You know, the if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. I used to sing a praise song like that all the time. Here's a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. If you want to be important, 
wonderful. If you want to be recognized, wonderful. If you want to be great, wonderful. But recognize that he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. That's a new definition of greatness. Let us all aim to be truly great so our lives may be a blessing on the world. Again, that was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The famous passage of Scripture that's been the topic of many songs and sermons relating to service is found in the books of Mark in chapter 10, verses 35 to 45, Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 to 28, And the same idea of the greatest among you will be your servant is also found in Matthew chapter 23, verse 11. The backstory of this passage of Scripture goes that two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, who were biological brothers, came to Jesus asking him that they would be able to sit in positions of honor next to Jesus in eternity. Jesus told them that they didn't know what they were asking for that it would not be possible for them to fulfill the qualifications for what they were seeking, and that to do what they asked was not up to him anyway, him being Jesus. His father's preordained plan already contained all the seating assignments for eternity. The other ten disciples of Jesus overheard what James and John had asked of Jesus, and they became upset. They were troubled that these two brothers would have the nerve (laughs) to ask for such a thing right in front of everyone else. I can just hear Peter say, Who do you two think you are? Knowing the ruckus that the two brothers (laughs) just caused, Jesus stepped in and took advantage of a teachable moment. This is what it says in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so amongst you. But whoever desires to become great amongst you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so amongst you, but whoever desires to become great amongst you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus tells his disciples that the kingdom of heaven does not work like the things in this world do. That should give us a big clue. Quit trying to fit the kingdom of heaven into the way things are in this world. Well, a quick read of this scripture makes it initially sound like it's some kind of formula, like he's telling them that whoever wants to become great, meaning highly esteemed and important, will only be allowed to do so if they become a truly humble servant. Then he says that to qualify to be the chief amongst the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you must be the servant or slave of everyone. Well, how is it even possible for someone to be the servant of everyone? Without missing a beat, after Jesus declares what it takes to be the greatest or chief or first 
in the kingdom of heaven. He explains that that job is already taken. Jesus is the only one who came to serve everyone by being qualified to give his life as a ransom for many. So, you know, sorry, James and John, you'll never qualify for being the greatest. But what about simply great? Does Jesus tell us here how to be great and highly esteemed and important in the kingdom of heaven? Is this a formula, how to be all that? This is not a story about Jesus telling anyone how to become great. This is a story about Jesus schooling his disciples on the importance of humility and not seeking to be great in the eyes of others. This is a story that's been turned on its head by modern theologians. There's a story about a guy who one Sunday was called up front during the church service and awarded a pin that said, Most Humble. The next Sunday, he wore the pin to church. Well, (laughs) of course they took his pin away for being proud of his humbleness. (laughs) Wanting to be seen by others as great and honored for one's achievements is called pride. Pride is the opposite of being humble. There are many scriptures which tell us that God highly values humbleness, like this one from 1 Peter 5, verses 5b, that's the second half of uh, 5, verse 6. It says, And be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. On the other hand, God hates self-pride. There are copious scriptures supporting that idea. Among them, Proverbs 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance, and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Proverbs 29, 23 says this, A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. And finally, Proverbs 16, verses 18 and 19 tells us, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be of humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. So, according to the Bible, just as bad as having pride is to purposely seek a prideful position of greatness... A humble heart, which God seems to greatly value, as much as he hates the prideful heart, would say, out of sincerity and understanding the fallen nature, I don't deserve to sit in the place of honor. Let anyone but me sit there. I am not worthy to be seated next to my Lord. That's the humble heart. That's the heart that God values. Service is not a formula for greatness. Jesus recognizes the pride in James and John. He gives them an impossible formula that many today miss the point of. If you desire and strive to be great and sit in a position of honor, then you will put everyone else ahead of yourself and not strive 
or have the desire to be great and sit in a position of honor. Isn't that something? Don't miss this. Jesus does not say as a reward for serving, you will be made first. Jesus says, as a penalty to those who seek to be great or first, they will be made last. This is Mark chapter 9, verse 35 to 36. And he, Jesus, sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. That's pretty clear. It doesn't say the inverse. If you want to be great, do this. It says, if anyone desires to be first, if that's the desire of your heart, to be great and first, then you will be last and the servant of all. This is not a formula which suggests that serving others is the way to attain greatness in the kingdom of heaven. This is Jesus saying that if you desire to be considered great, he will make sure that you are not. He's warning John and James and the rest of the disciples, telling them they're wrong to aspire to be greater and put themselves ahead of others. Jesus is telling the disciples, you know, before I go on, this is in reaction to James and John, the brothers, wanting to be great. You know, like it's just this little brother argument. I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. I'm going to sit by the master. No, I'm going to sit by the, you know, that kind of thing. And Jesus is throwing a bucket of water on the whole thing, not telling them, okay, you guys want to be great? Then do this. No, he's saying, if you want to be great, you will not be great. <laughs> anyway, Jesus is telling the disciples the penalty for having the desire to be great is being awarded with being last and being the servant of everyone. Too often, these scriptures are misused as a part of a formula. A formula that says, if you want the results of being great in God's kingdom, you need to serve. Such an idea is an easy sell for 21st century capitalist Americans to think that our end game should be to attain greatness. But... The truth of the matter is that these scriptures are not calling anyone to personal, self-obtained greatness. They are warning against the ugly, prideful desire to be great and put oneself ahead of others. The way to understand these scriptures is that one should serve others out of a motivation of love, with a humble heart, and for no other reason, especially not for the reason of wanting to be great. <laughs> if someone asks you how to be great in the kingdom of heaven, your answer should first be that they need to stop asking that question and lose their desire to be great. It's not all about obtaining awards in heaven or rewards and being greater than others. That is so missing the point. Well, I have a theory. It's a theory of what will determine who may sit in any positions of honor in the kingdom of heaven, if, in fact, that will even literally take place. It will be those who sincerely, in their heart of hearts, have come to understand that, apart from Jesus, it is impossible to do anything that is truly considered righteous. Righteous in the eyes of God, anyway. In other words, 
There is nothing anyone can set out to do on their own to be great in God's kingdom. If there's anything you think you've done that has earned you favor with God apart from relying on who Jesus is, you are disqualified. If you think you deserve a crown for all those souls that you think you won, you are disqualified. If you think that your stewardship has proven you to be the most faithful so that you deserve to be given more responsibilities and authority in the kingdom of heaven, you are disqualified. If you think you've been the humblest servant of all, so you should be seated in a position of honor, you are absolutely disqualified. The day before you die or the Lord returns, if you think you really had the whole Christian thing nailed down and you should be looked at as a role model or a mentor, you are disqualified. If you run the race thinking that there is a prize that you have earned waiting for you, you're disqualified. And if you want to be considered great when you get to heaven, <laughs> you're disqualified. And obviously, if you show up to heaven feeling that apart from Jesus, you're qualified to be there, you are really disqualified. The truly humble know that it is only Jesus that is worthy of any greatness in the eyes of God. They know they deserve nothing because they have nothing to give God that He didn't give them, whether that's time, talents, or treasures. The great of God's kingdom will never set out to be great in God's kingdom. Romans 11, 34-36 tells us this, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become His counselor, or who has first given to Him and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. A truly humble person knows that to lay up their treasure in heaven, you can read that in Matthew 6.20, is not to give more money to the church. It's to place all your trust to take care of your every need of your eternal future in the capable hands of Jesus. The person with a humble heart will care nothing about receiving a crown that they think they earned when they get to heaven because they will understand that every crown really belongs to Jesus. Listen to this passage involving crowns found in Revelation chapter 4, verses 10 to 11. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. A humble person will not talk about the size of the mansion that they deserve in heaven. They will be in tears, with their head hanging down, feeling unworthy when the one who built it for them, Jesus, is handing them the keys to that mansion. Wow! A humble person understands that apart from the vine, Jesus, they are nothing but a dead stick, destined for the fire.
There's a reference to that in John 15 verses 5 to 6. They know it's not them who contributes to their own righteousness, but God that directs their every step. The humble in heaven will know that the only reason they're there is because of Jesus, the one who chose them, the one who redeemed them with his blood, the one who gave them everything they ever had to work with, the one who planned their deeds, and the one who did his work through them. Well, here's the deal. I, I so hope you get this. If after hearing all of this, you are now setting out to be humble in order to be great, you've completely missed the point. <laughs> the point I'm making here is not how to show how to be great in God's kingdom by not trying or desiring to be great in God's kingdom. It's not trying to convince anyone of the virtues of being humble. My purpose in explaining this portion of scripture was to, number one, point out that, again, no one but Jesus could have ever come to serve everyone in the way that he did, by serving as the ransom for so many. And number two, because of what I'm illustrating in this episode, I need to demonstrate how badly this portion of scripture gets misused in the promotion of service and good works. What are the followers of Jesus to do? Only Jesus could accomplish the purposes he came to the earth for. So what is my part? You and I are the ones he came to declare his father to. You and I are who he came to show his father's love to. You and I are those he came to save. You and I are those that he came to serve as the ransom for our sin. Jesus is the shepherd that sees our needs, and we are but sheep. The most we can do is believe in and follow him. Yet, once someone has decided to believe in Jesus, accept what he did on our behalf, and follow him, it's natural for them to want to know what following him should take the form of while he's physically absent from this earth. Disciples of Jesus have trouble believing that they should remain only as sheep, contented to only know the voice of the Good Shepherd and follow him. Today's Christian doctrines are rich with suggestions as to what the followers of Jesus should be doing. Two very popular suggestions, which a great deal of emphasis is placed on today, are service to others and missions. Spreading the Gospel both things fit under the greater category known within the church as good works. To be clear, although God works everything together for good, what constitutes good works in the eyes of God, which were or are accomplished by humans, depends on one's motivations. I have to be extremely careful here, not to simply repeat the error of what I'm being critical of. It's the teaching that says that we gotta act like the authentic believer by purposefully doing the things that an authentic believer would do. Like, I must religiously, using my own planning and wisdom, engage in good works if I want to demonstrate to both God and man that I've been saved. This doctrine or teaching, you know, that I'm critical of, says that if I want to say that I'm a Christian and be believable, that I'll be careful to show the world that 
that I possess the fruits of the Spirit. I need to show this to others so they believe that I'm a Christian. I'll also not hide my light under a bushel, but rather I'll look for opportunities to let my light shine before men so they can see my good works. Chances are the life of anyone, whether authentic child of God or not, who is serious about saying they are a Christian will look different from the world in varying degrees because they are trying to act like a Christian. Anyone can learn good Christian behaviors with a little practice and through careful adherence to a religion, anyone can fake it. Anyone who aspires to can be an imposter or try, and as futile as it is, earn their way to heaven. The life of an authentic child of God will look different, and it'll do so without anyone acting. You will indeed see evidence of the true fruits of the Spirit in the life of the authentic follower of the authentic Jesus. What's the difference between the authentic believer and the poser? Well, the authentic child of God who has been born from above does not need to fake it. They don't need to act. They don't need to be nagged at and motivated Sunday after Sunday to clean up their act and be more like the Christian they should aspire to be. They just will be. The authentic child of God possesses a Holy Spirit-provided supernatural drive within themselves to know Jesus better and to want nothing more than to serve and please Him. They thirst for His righteousness and hunger for His wisdom. They are zealous for good works, not as humans define works, but as anything God chooses to do through them. They long to one day hear the words from Jesus, Well done, good and faithful servant. It's the Messiah, Jesus, they're motivated by, and not their own vanity, status, or self-image, or self-interest. They're not motivated by wanting to be great. They will appear authentic because they are authentic. Whereas faking it takes a great deal of energy and is destined for failure, authenticity is sustained supernaturally and will endure. Will the authentic child of God appear to be perfect? Well, no, of course not. Especially to the religiously minded. They'll continue to be sinners who have been declared righteous by God. Will they have doubts? Probably. Will they question their beliefs? Yes, as they continue to strive to have authentic beliefs and discard their previously held wrong beliefs. They'll humbly approach the truth, understanding their own limits and flaws. Because of their authenticity, they may not appear to be anything like what popular Christian culture says a Christian should look like. As we've seen, Jesus said, The work of God is to believe in Him. That's found in John chapter 6, verse 29. We know that biblical belief in Jesus requires knowledge and understanding of authentic truth concerning Him and an appropriate response to the truth. We know that this belief extends beyond the basic knowledge and understanding required for salvation. Although the new authentic child of God 
isn't required to know everything. The work of believing in the one the Father sent, Jesus, involves the pursuit of knowing the entire being of who the Father sent. That is truly a lot of work. As light of a burden and rewarding as it may be. Besides the work and service of knowing, understanding, and believing in the Son of God, we can expect to see Jesus doing His good works through the authentic child of God. But unlike a church which is trying to convince people to serve in the nursery or participate in a mission team going to Haiti or Jamaica or somewhere, I'm not going to limit what form the work of Jesus can take. I would expect that whatever Jesus does through those who belong to him and bear his name to be done in love, humbly, and for unselfish reasons. The authentic child of God will be thrilled to be used by God in any way that God wills. There's a scripture passage which is very often used by pastors to tell people to get out there and get busy on behalf of Jesus. They use it in such a way that to say that the very reason Christians exist is to do good works. That passage is found in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. It says this, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance as our way of life. We can clearly see that one of the purposes of who one who is in Christ Jesus is, is to do good works. However, just as clear from this passage is that God has prepared or foreordained what these works will be. He has declared them to take place in our lives. He's not sitting around waiting us for our agreement in this. What God has declared to happen in our lives is going to happen. We will be irresistibly drawn to what it is we're supposed to do that he planned for us to do. Most oftentimes, we won't even be aware of it. If you're a child of God, you can have confidence that you are walking in the good works that God appointed for you to walk in. You don't need to feel guilty that you're not doing something that you should be. You shouldn't feel the weight that others are trying to place on your shoulders telling you you should be doing something. Get out there and do, do, do. You are walking in the good works that God appointed you to do if you're an authentic child of God. After his conversion experience, scholars say that the Apostle Paul took three years to study the scriptures and be personally tutored by Jesus before he began his apostolic ministry. That was after he was already formally trained in scriptures and Jewish doctrines while becoming a Pharisee. The Son of God takes a while to get to know and understand. Getting to know and understand Jesus, like Paul was taking the time to do, is the work of God. Believing in Jesus is the work of God. It's extremely eye-opening to keep this work in mind as you read every other scripture about the work of the Lord that's found in the Bible. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, it says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable always, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Abounding in the work of the Lord 
means to abound in your belief in the Lord, your knowledge and understanding of Him. It's to walk in the Spirit. It means to be steadfast and immovable in that work. Well, Jesus visited his apostle John on the Isle of Patmos around 60 years or so after his ascension. Jesus could have used that opportunity to tell John to tell his church in the last book of the Bible how important it was for them to serve others and spread the gospel. Yet, Jesus did no such thing. In each of the little seven mini-letters that Jesus dictated to John, they're founded in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, Jesus tells the churches, the ecclesias, that he's aware of what they're doing and what they are going through. Modern works-based teaching common in mainstream and evangelical churches, superimpose their agenda over the top of these letters. They teach that when Jesus refers to the church's works, that it means something like we would think of as works today, that these ancient churches obviously were preaching the gospel, clothing and feeding people in need, and sending out missionaries. Well, every time you read the phrase in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, I know your works or deeds. Keep in mind that the modern way of saying this is, I know what you're doing, (laughs) you know, or I know what you have been doing. The Greek word ergon can just as easily be translated as do as it can deeds or works, depending on the context. In each of the seven letters to the churches, after Jesus tells them that he's aware of what they've been doing, he reviews how well they've been doing it. It's only in his letter to the church at Thyatira that he even mentions service. He says nothing about their service other than that he is aware of it. And even then, it's not their service he's concerned about in the rest of the letter to them. It's the false teachings that they'd allowed to exist among them. Everything Jesus is concerned about in the seven mini-letters to the churches contained in the book of Revelation is how well they've been holding the line with their beliefs He's concerned with how they've been doing in relation to the work of God, belief in Jesus, the one that God sent. He reviews the teaching they've been listening to and what they're tolerating amongst themselves that's not consistent with truth. The only work Jesus is concerned about in every case is the work of their belief. Much of the New Testament informs us on how to go about doing the work that Jesus left his followers to do. Some teachings found in the New Testament concern how to get along when followers of Jesus get together and corporately do the work of God, which is still, whether it's individually or together, still that work is to believe in Jesus. For example, in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 to 14, we read, Watch. Stand fast in the faith, or belief. Be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. And Colossians 3.23 tells us, And whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord, and not to men. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about a church here when I say this, because church includes both believers and unbelievers as well as many unbiblical and even anti-biblical traditions of humans. But we know that when the authentic children of God, the ecclesia, 
get together in the name of Jesus to do His work, which is simply believing in Him, that God will use different people to accomplish different functions within the group or association of believers. It's very clear that not everyone will be used in the same way when the body of Christ or the association or group of authentic children of God comes together for accomplishing the work of God. Again, to be repetitive, because it's so important, the work of God essentially is belief in the one whom God sent, his son, Jesus. Scripture points out that God has made some, not all, to be teachers. Some, not all, preachers. Some, not all, administrators. Some, not all, gospel spreaders or evangelists. And some, not all, he made to be helpers or servants. Everyone in the body is called to act in love. Well, a part of love is caring for the needs of one another. But not everyone is called to serve or help others in the same way. Listen to what 1 Peter 4, 10-11 says. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers or serves, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. There's a biblically-based role or function within the body of Christ known as a deacon. Deacon is based on the same Greek word as service. This is a specific part of the body of the ecclesia. Although being a servant is an important part of the ecclesia, just like being a teacher or preacher is for others, it's clear in Scripture that not all within the ecclesia are called to be deacons, or in English, servants. Deacons are clearly you know, referred to separately in the New Testament, as though it's their personal full-time calling. Well, for the past few decades, many evangelical churches have encouraged their members to determine where they specifically fit in within the body of Christ. This causes some to be confused. What is one's gift? What's my mission? How should I be serving? How should you be serving? What's the work that we should be doing? Because, so the thought process goes, doesn't everyone have a specific skill talent, ability, or gift that they've been given? And have they not been created to do good works? There's countless books and seminars that offer to help one figure this out. Because this is such an American thing. (laughs) Aren't we supposed to be doing something, serving, getting out there, doing the work? Before one wrestles with this question, they need to put the topic of gifts and abilities into perspective. Perspective is gained by understanding exactly who it is we are to serve. The same transaction whereby Jesus paid for our sins with his own blood, he purchased us with his blood. Listen to this from the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, You 
Jesus, are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood have purchased us for God out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We become a possession of Jesus, his bondservants. The word bondservant means someone who voluntarily becomes the slave of another. The authentic child of God truly is a servant, every one of us, not just the deacons, but a servant only to the master who paid for us, Jesus. Jesus gave his servants an important rule to follow. One cannot serve two masters. You can read that in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Whether the two masters are God and money, or God and the local church. Jesus and what has come to be known as the church are not the same. But the same command is true. They are to serve Jesus alone. To answer the question of what your specific God-given gift or ability is, it's whatever Jesus needs you to be when he does his work through you. Will you put a limit on how you can think he should use you based on some test you took online or a seminar you attended? Or will you trust that he knows best how and when to use you, as he's already done your entire life? While you're confused as to what your gift or ability is and how he can use you, he's using you. <laughs> well, how does that work in our normal just day-to-day life? Well, I worked for the county sheriff's office for two and a half decades. There were many, many days I did not enjoy going to work because of the nature of the business. Yet, I had a very successful career. I retired as the chief deputy, answering directly and only to the sheriff in a sheriff's office of around 300 employees. As a sad side note, side note um, my friend, the guy that I worked for, Sheriff Tom Turner, passed away this last week from cancer. Uh, That makes me sad. Uh, I enjoyed working with Tom very much. He had a huge impact on my life. Now, this is not a formula for success that I'm suggesting here. The rank that I retired at is not indicative of a successful career in law enforcement. There are so many frontline-level deputies that retired with a more successful career than I can dream of. Honestly, if you make it through your career in law enforcement with your life and your sanity, you can call it a great success. Regarding any success that I had working at the sheriff's office, I am convinced that my career success was because I consciously worked for my master Jesus for most of those years. Jesus, in a sense, runs a sort of a temp hire agency. He temp hired me out to the sheriff's office for over 25 years. I consciously, I mean, I remember this. I'm not uh, exaggerating or engaging in hyperbole here, but every day for most of my career, you know, especially the, the second two-thirds or three-quarters of it, the last thing I would do before I got to work every day was to pray that God would allow me to be a blessing to the sheriff's office because I was there to serve 
my master Jesus and wanted to represent him well. For the authentic child of God, every day, anything we do, we cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve God and the pastor. We cannot serve God and the church. We cannot serve God and our spouses. We can't serve God and our children or God and our friends. That is how I believe the Bible indicates that the authentic child of God should approach life. There are many specific functions or works that the Bible talks about in regard to coming together as a body of believers, the ecclesia or the church. These works are not the end goal of following Jesus. It's not our purpose to come together as a community in the name of Jesus only to serve one another. It's the purpose of the church or the ecclesia to come together to know Jesus better. You know, the primary purpose and function and the reason for the ecclesia's being. And while we're doing that, the church is to operate as a functional and cohesive organization. Now, not an institution, but just to function in an organized manner. While corporately getting to know Jesus better, someone might teach me, well, they're doing a good work. Someone else may make the group sandwiches. That person is doing a good work. Someone may be singing songs that blesses us and encourages everyone. They're doing a good work. Through the normal course of life, God will bring authentic children of God in contact with those who do not yet know Him. That is a good work. He may use them to tell the lost about Himself. Well, these works are important to help serve the end goal, to know and understand Jesus better, and to assist the expansion of the kingdom of God, which is primarily the work of the Holy Spirit. In this way, we serve others in the name of Jesus to accomplish the primary work of God, which is to believe in Him, to maintain hope in what He said, and to look for His coming, and to love one another. A work is any verb that you can think of. Lying is a work, a bad work, a work of the flesh. Not lying or telling the truth when you communicate with others is a good work. Just by virtue of not doing something bad, it's good. Stealing is a bad work. Not stealing and paying for your own stuff is a good work. Living a life that's zealous for good works can mean nothing more than being dedicated to living a moral life and not doing evil. Doesn't mean you got to get out there and get so busy and do this and do that. Well, what I'm going to read here is an example of scripture that refers to this type of good work. This is from Titus chapter 3 verses 1 to 2. Now this is Paul writing his protege Titus. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Those are all good works. Just like doing the right thing is a good work. Well, in this scripture, the Apostle Paul wrote in the letter to Titus, Paul tells Titus that not speaking evil of others 
is a good work. Likewise, not getting into a fight (laughs) is a good work. It's like the absence of doing evil is a good work. Those who teach the importance of doing good works in the church today are generally not only referring to living morally when they are trying to convince people to go out and do good works, and they are almost never talking about the primary work Jesus has given his followers to do, which is to believe in him. And that is the goodest work of them all. Mostly those who are encouraging good works are talking about things like going on a mission trip to a third world nation to build rocket stoves or, I don't know, evangelizing on college campuses or serving food at the mission or doing a church service in prison or taking care of kids in the church nursery, you know, all that kind of stuff. All very nice, good things to do, but probably not all of your biblical burden to bear. So let's talk about these kind of works just a little bit more. The first type of good work is knowing the shepherd, Jesus. If we use Jesus as sheep and shepherd symbol of John 10, 11 to 16, Jesus' followers are the sheep, and he is the good shepherd. You can look at the work of God, knowing and understanding Jesus, as his sheep knowing and following the voice of Jesus. Our job as sheep is just to be sheep and allow the good shepherd to take care of us, to move us around. If we hear him call or see him move, we are to follow. We need to never stray or cause the shepherd to chase after us. That would be a bad work. We need to learn to recognize his voice, but that's all. Know and follow the shepherd. Well, the second type of work that I kind of alluded to a short time ago was getting along with the other sheep. (laughs) Our shepherd has expectations of us why we follow him. We need to treat the other sheep in his flock with respect and love. This is where the second kind of good works comes in. I shouldn't eat all the best grass myself. (laughs) I need to allow the other sheep around me to have first crack at the good grass, especially if they're hungry. I shouldn't trample over the top of other sheep. If I'm a mama sheep, a ewe, I need to keep track of and nurse my lambs and not let them wander too far off. I need to not bite the other sheep around me or butt their heads. (laughs) If I see a predator, I need to be alert and alert the others with an especially loud (laughs) As the good shepherd leads me and puts other sheep in my path, I need to treat them as they are a part of my flock, like my neighbor. My goal is not to save the world, or in this case, the sheep in the other fields. My goal is to be a good sheep and not a bad sheep. (laughs) Sorry. I can always relate to these sheep analogies that Jesus uses because we've kept a number of sheep over the years and goats. Uh, I highly prefer the sheep. Matter of fact, in the field right now, we have four sheep out there. Anyway, I've not yet discussed the final type of work in this episode that takes place amongst the flock. And that is the work of the shepherd. 
without the sheep even being aware of it, the good shepherd has an agenda. One day, he moves the flock to a field that needs to be fertilized. The next day, he moves the flock away from where he saw a wolf prowling. Another day, he moves the sheep to a field that needs to be mowed down. Sometimes one of the sheep will decide it knows better than the shepherd and it will try to move to another field on its own. Well, that's not helpful to the shelp to the shepherd. But the shepherd is ready for it. He's watching for that. He does what he needs to do to retrieve the lost sheep. Understanding the nature of sheep like no one else, the good shepherd gently moves the lost sheep back to where it belongs. Now and then, the shepherd purchases sheep from other flocks and adds them to his own. Sometimes he'll rescue a bummer lamb that's been rejected by their mothers or their mothers have been killed by a predator. He may bottle feed them, taking special care of them, and then he'll introduce them to this flock. He may even try and get a ewe in his own flock to adopt the bummer lamb as her own. Well, while the shepherd is accomplishing all of this and takes all these things into consideration and so much more, the sheep have been completely unaware of how they've been used to accomplish the goals of the shepherd. It's not even possible for them to think on the same level as the shepherd. They've been occupied with zealously doing their good work, keeping the grass mowed by eating it, spreading fertilizer by pooping in the fields, not butting heads with the other sheep, and listening for the good shepherd's voice. That was their responsibility. It has not been their job to figure out what field needs to be mowed or fertilizer, what sheep to purchase from another flock. It's not their responsibility to add to the flock. Well, what a tremendous thing for the authentic child of God to understand. Jesus will accomplish what he considers to be good works through those who belong to him without anyone telling them what to do. Only a sovereign God who can see and control everything could pull off such a thing. He's awesome. (laughs) The authentic children of God are not called to wring their hands and stress out over determining where they fit in. Nowhere in the Bible is anyone charged with attempting to figure this out and categorize themselves. They don't need to take one of many online tests to figure out their spiritual gift. They simply need to be who they are and trust that God is doing what He said He would do through them. They only need to react in a biblically-based manner to what God puts in front of them each day. The will of Jesus being carried out in the life of the authentic child of God may even occur without their being aware of what the good works are, like I've said now a couple times. The good works the authentic child of God was appointed to do were preordained by God long ago and have no choice but to walk in the good works they were predestined to accomplish. I said this earlier, but I'm going to read it again. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, that's from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. God wrote what he considers to be good into the script of the believer's life. Try as he or she might not to do divinely appointed good works. They're going to do them anyway. 
whether they or anyone else is aware of the divinely appointed work, from the perspective of the Creator, the work He carries out through them is good. Therein lies the actual power of God that exists in the believer, Christ living in and through them. Man, this stuff is exciting. Uh, this is like a major part of the gospel that just gets lost. That is incredible. It's huge. <laughs> Man's best efforts at doing good works are like filthy rags to God. Isaiah 64, 6 says as much. You know, the fall of man came about because Adam and Eve did what they thought was best. Not what God thought was best. Abraham temporarily suspended his faith and took matters into his own hands and slept with his wife's servant. Thank God that he takes everything that we muck up and works it out for good. We're called to completely trust Jesus to be the God that he says that he is in Scripture. Can we do that? That's a God that needs our help in figuring out what to do? No, that's not the God we're asked to believe in. Giving up personal control and believing these things about God admittedly is difficult, and it's a full-time endeavor. It takes a lot of trust. It can be far more difficult than making our own plans, attempting to solve our own problems, correct our own behaviors, and take matters into our own hands. That's likely why we often default to doing these things. The good news the authentic child of God does not need to waste time figuring out how to serve or save this world. Listen to how ironic this is. You know if you've listened to the Called Out Cafe podcast series on the unseen spirit realm, that this earth is currently still the kingdom of Satan. Jesus called Satan the prince of this world and Paul called him something similar. There are regional principalities and powers and authorities that are in charge of this earth while we await for the return of Jesus and for him to put all of his enemies under his feet. What's ironic is that so many in the church teach that it's the church's responsibility to serve this world, the world which belongs to Satan. I just have to think that Satan is so totally gratified by this. I'm sure he's tickled. Yes, we are called to love our enemies and our neighbors who God puts in our path. However, the emphasis on taking care of those who are outside of the body of Christ is skewed and unbiblical. Again, it's not the job of the ecclesia to serve. The ecclesia, of course, are the called out ones. It's not their job to serve or save the world. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, of course the Holy Spirit will use those who belong to Jesus as he sees fit. But those who make up the body of Christ merely need to be good sheep and trust that Jesus is accomplishing his will in their lives. Believing that Jesus accomplishes his work in this way is where we circle back around to the primary work of the authentic child of God believing in Jesus. What an awesome Jesus the authentic Jesus is to believe in. Now, I know I said that this episode was about the God of service and works, the great saw. And I know I didn't talk about 
that false god directly. But I gave you a bunch of stuff that we need to know in the next episode. So with all of this in mind about works, in the next episode, let's go to church (laughs) and listen to a hypothetical sermon. But until we do that, may God bless you richly and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com, or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. Thank you.